Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. Build a link between kindness on one side as an example and productivity, between optimism and effectiveness, between curiosity and efficiency. You talk about kindness is a nice to have, and every company wants to be associated to that idea. But at the end of the day, you need to deliver results. But if you build a link between kindness and those results, all of a sudden, it becomes something really interesting. This is Mark Devine, and I'm the host of The Mark Devine Show. Thanks for joining me today. Super stoked to have you here. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational and compassionate and resilient leaders. Each week, I have a guest from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, high-powered CEOs, meditation monks, and even world-class designers from PepsiCo, for instance. So I'm talking today to Mario Porcini about the human side of innovation, Mario's PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer. Over the past eight years, he and his design team have won more than 1,100 design and innovation awards. And in 2018, PepsiCo was recognized by Fortune in its Driven by Design list. Mauro is previously 3M's first chief design officer, and he's been recognized with several personal awards, including Fortune's 40 Under 40, GQ Italia's 30 Best Dressed Men, and Fast Company's 50 Most Influential Designers in the U.S. 2018, Porcini was awarded with a knighthood by the President of the Italian Republic, and he lives in New York City. Mauro, thanks so much for joining me today. What's your story in terms of, uh, like, what was your upbringing in life, the influence of your parents, what brought you to America? You know, give us some of the good, bad, and the ugly. My story, I'm Italian, as you can hear from my accent. I was born in the north of Italy, and I realized very later, you know, in life, later in life, how important has been my upbringing and the, especially the role of my parents in my life journey and my professional journey. My mom and dad, they were obsessed with two very important values for them. One was the value of culture, the knowledge and knowing and studying and learning. They were never really told too much about this. They were just practicing it and they were admiring all these people out there that eventually had that kind of culture. One of the two dreams that they had for me was to become a professor in university because in their mind, it was the, one of the best jobs to study all your life and keep growing your culture, your life. The second value was the idea of kindness, the, the idea of being good people, good human beings to others. For them, that was translated in the idea of being Catholic, but the values they were talking about were totally universal and transcend any kind of religion. And so, again, you know, the second dream that they had for me, for them actually was dream number one, was for me to become a priest. So here I am, I grew up, you know, with those kind of parents. And for them, the idea of fame and financial success was not a goal, was actually a trap. They would never talk about this. But when I started to have a little bit, you know, a little money, more than average, because, you know, my work was doing well, I remember my mother starting to get worried that I could lose my way, you know, my values and my simplicity, my humbleness and all those things. The other thing that for me was really, really important in those years was to observe them every day, witness their passion for what they were doing. My father was an architect, but not a successful one. He was an high school professor that was his core job. But then 
what he loved the most was to paint, to sketch, to draw, and he would do it every single day. And still today in their 80s, he still does it. My mom was working in finance, but she really didn't like the work. She left her job when she was 38 to be close to her family. And by the way, we were coming from a very humble family. We sleep the four of us in one bedroom. So it's not that it was not easy for her to leave her job, but she just wanted to be close to the kids and do what she loved. That was writing. So I would look at her writing every day of her life. You say writing, you mean like journaling or what would she write? Uh, well, that's a good question. It was a mix of journaling, poems, thoughts of any kind, prayers. They would collect all these things, you know, the poems and the thoughts of my mom and the drawings of my father. And years ago, they started to self-publish books. Now they, they self-publish eight books. They didn't care about selling to anybody. Yeah, you can buy them, but it's all about their art and their passions and, and their content they want to share with the world, but mostly with the people close to them. So why all this story about my parents? Because this love for what you do, no matter what is your job, this extreme passion, and then this idea of being a good human being, and then this idea of knowledge and culture before anything else is somehow what defined my professional journey. And I didn't realize it at all at the beginning. I thought it was just the normal way of doing things. And then I realized later on, not just looking at myself, but mostly looking at the teams I built in these big companies in PepsiCo today, in 3M, the tech company from Minnesota. Before looking at the characteristics of these people, these teams, I realized that those kind of values were the values that my teams were having as well. And that made that journey inside the business world of this corporation so successful. And often people don't talk about these kind of values. It's something that you don't match. Right. No, I could see, you know, if you do work with corporations, which I have, I mean, just how powerful those three, you know, would be. Like, if you can imagine every organization to have a family kind of value, like you feel like it's family when you, you know, go to work, how rare would that be, right? And how rare would it, is it to have everyone lead with kindness as opposed to their own needs? And isn't it kind of rare that everyone actually loves what they do? So, can you imagine, right? In fact, we're trying to develop, building upon the principles of this guy, Harvard professor Robert Keegan. It's called the Deliberately Developmental Organization. Part of our work is to try to create these cultures where people are thriving, doing exactly what they do with compassion and kindness, and they love to go to work because they're growing and thriving at work. I think this is the future, and maybe you, you've cracked the code on that also. <laughs> well, and think about these companies do not talk about kindness or compassion too much, but they do talk about productivity, efficiency, effectiveness. So the effort that we need to make, and what I've been trying to do all these years, but as a designer, not you know as an HR professional or not as an academic trying to really understand how to put numbers behind these kind of values, but as a designer, I've been trying to build a link between kindness on one side as an example, and productivity, between optimism and effectiveness, between curiosity and efficiency. When you start to link the two dimensions, all of a sudden, the company becomes very interested on these kind of topics. You talk about kindness, it's nice to have, and every company wants to be associated to that idea, but at the end of the day, you need to deliver results. But if you build a link between kindness and those results, all of a sudden, it becomes something really interesting. Think about kindness. You mentioned it earlier. 
you go to work and you're surrounded by people that are not nice to you, that are not kind to you. What do you do? Well, you go to your meetings, you do your meetings, and then you rush out of that office as fast as possible. But if you're surrounded by people you like, there is a high probability you're going to spend time with them. It could be a meal, a quick drink, or something else. That quality time is what builds the bonds, the synergy that make the team so much more efficient and powerful and great in general in so many dimensions, but especially when you will face later on, one week later, a month later, a year later, a moment of difficulty in a project, in the business, maybe in the life of some of the team members, because the moments of difficulty in your private life are moments that anyway you take to work. And so if you are leading a company or leading a team within a company, do you want people that have that kind of synergy, that help each other in those moments of difficulties, or you want people that eventually are against each other. And when one of the team members has a moment of difficulty, the other profit of the situation. Imagine what happened, by the way, if you are surrounded by this kind of people, you're going to do a series of activities to protect yourself. You don't want that person to stab you on the back in a moment of weakness. So you're going to do many things to make sure that you are covered when that may happen. Now, all these things, these activities are totally redundant to the organization. They're not necessary. The organization doesn't need them. And so multiply the number of these redundant activities by the number of people in a company, hundreds of thousands of people in my organization, for instance, and understand the level of invisible, hidden lack of productivity generated by the lack of kindness. And this is one example, but I'm sure you can think about many others. It's powerful. And, and we never talk about this. We talk about increasing productivity by cutting costs, optimizing processes, laying off people. We never talk about increasing productivity by investing in kindness. And it's so powerful instead. I agree and brought up a host of interesting questions, but just I'm sure it probably hasn't been studied, but I think it'd be easy to validate that kindness will increase creativity significantly because when it is put in the context of negative versus positive thinking, positive thinking, right, is expansive, it's opening, it's got a higher vibrational quality and it strengthens and it leads to that more of a spontaneous innovation or, or creativity. Whereas negative thinking, lack of kindness equates to negative thinking, lower vibrational energy, collapsing and shutting down, closing off the most important mental attributes that lead to creativity, which is open heart and, and intuition. No, I completely, completely agree. In the book, I talk about actually optimism. My focus on this idea. You know, kindness is like empathy, is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of others, but connected with action. You put yourself in the shoes of others, and then you act on that empathy, on that sensitivity. Optimism, one step even further, you act on the base of that sympathy and empathy, but you also do it without stopping in front of any kind of roadblock looking at the glass always are full, understanding actually if you're changing things, if you're acting on the kindness, if you are shaking things around, by definition, always, 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 you will find roadblocks, difficulties, challenges. If you don't, it means you're not changing anything. You should wonder if you don't face these difficulties, am I really making any change? And so you need a kind of optimism. Now, for every characteristic that you have in the book, I talk about 24 different skills and characteristics and optimism and kindness are two of them. Partially they're natural, but partially are also characteristics that you can nurture, you can invest on. 
uh, in a variety of different ways. If you think of optimism, I mean, how many times I found myself in moments of like, oh my God, I mean, this is so difficult. Can I really overcome this kind of situation? A technique that I developed is this. I, every time I'm in the moment, I try to step back. I detach myself from the moment and I do it by looking in two opposite directions. On one side, I look at the dream, the vision, where I'm trying to go, what drives me every day, but really the long-term vision. And then on the other side, I look at where I came from, you know, the progress that I did until then. Because when you're in the middle of the difficulty, you forget that anyway, you did already so much to get there. So celebrate that, appreciate that. Remember, especially other difficulties you had in the past. And remember how those difficulties shaped you made you the person you are today. I had some challenges in my life that were so tough, so tough, but they made me a better person, a better leader, a better human being. And so when I face again certain kind of challenges, I'm thinking, well, wait a second, this is anyway a milestone, a step in the right direction. And whatever comes out of this, I'm going to learn out of this. And so that's an example of how to practice optimism. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. But you were at PepsiCo as your chief design officer. You know, as a design officer, you're talking about packaging and brand equity and those things. How did this theme start to show up in design, like in, in how you, you know, communicate and, and bring that into the culture of PepsiCo. I'm just, I'm really curious to find the link between, I can intuit it, but I just don't really logically see how even you would have this conversation in an organization the size of PepsiCo, <laughs> especially coming from the design department, you know? Yeah. The reason is that when you design, by definition, everything, everything, everything you do implies a change and an evolution what we call a form of innovation. It could be radical, disruptive innovation. I'm inventing a new product. I'm applying a new technology to something that didn't exist before. But it goes all the way to the simple change of a packaging for a campaign, and people are out of the comfort zone, you know, embracing something if it's too disruptive. So anything we do implies that kind of innovation. Now, what happened is that before PepsiCo, many years ago, I was still at 3M, and I was trying to drive this change with this human-centered approach to everything we do. That's what design is about, focusing on people and then anything else come. Financial results, technologies, they're all amplifiers, enables, results. But what we do is to focus on creating value for people, identifying their needs, their wants, their frustration, their dreams, and finding opportunities in that to create new products, new brands, new services, new experiences of any kind. This is what we do as designers. So here I am, I go in 3M and like, okay, I'm going to introduce this new human-centered approach to innovation. And I bring in all the tools and the methodologies that we have in the design world. And I don't do it just by myself. I bring in renowned design firms and innovation firms that we pay millions of dollars over the years to teach us, uh, teach the organization how to do innovation in a different way. And after a while, looking back at many projects that I run with this kind of approach, I realized that, first of all, many projects were doing very well in market and a variety of others were failing miserably. 
eventually even before arriving to market. So over the years, I was like, okay, maybe I need to change the tools. I need to take them to the next level, tweak things. But then I realized something pretty obvious, that what was really making the difference in those projects were not the tools and the methodologies. It was all about the people behind those tools and methodologies. And still often, for example, you have a company that invests in design thinking and you introduce that kind of methodology and, and then the project doesn't go where you expect the project to go and they blame the methodology. You see design thinking is not working without realizing that actually probably the problem was the people behind that tool, their ability to observe the world, to understand what is relevant or not for the company and for people, the courage and the resilience to bring ideas through the system and win all the difficulties, overcome all the difficulties that you face, and so on and so forth. So years ago, I came out of need. You know, it was a very practical need. I came up with this list of characteristics of the people I wanted to hire in 3M. I wrote down that list, I gave it to HR, and I asked them to use it as a filter when they were selecting all the people they were presenting to me. Then it became a paper for the Design Management Institute Review. It became the topic of many conferences. And the reason that I went more and more public with these filters is that I wanted people out there to select themselves, self-select, before even arriving to our organization. What were some of those features, by the way? Well, I mean, some of them I mentioned, like optimism, curiosity, respect, humbleness combined with confidence. There are others that are more obvious in this world, but yet not that practice, like the ability to dream, to think big. You know, we are born with that ability. As kids, we are all dreamers. We dream, we fantasize, and then society tries to normalize us. They tell us that dreaming is childish, and yet we protect that ability to dream for a while until we go to college. Then we get out of college and we go to work, and we think still that we can change these companies and we can do great. And then people arrive to us and they tell us, what do you think you can do? It? How arrogant it is from you, you thinking that you can change this company, you can change this brand, you can change the world. Why do you think you can? We stop dreaming in the everyday life because we think the dream is just not practical, it's not good, it's childish. Once again, there are few people though that preserve that kind of ability. They're still dreamers, but that's not enough either. You need to be able to dream, but then also land those dreams. Combine that with the ability to make things happen, the ability to take trade-offs and compromises and understanding that those trade-offs and compromises are actually just a way to get to that dream in an incremental way, step-by-step, step, instead of getting demoralized by that or thinking that, you are betrayed the integrity and the purity of that dream. No, you need both to go towards the direction of your goal, your dream, your aspiration. So there are many, many other characteristics. But again, I think one of the key points that I make in the book that I've been making all these years in, in the organizations I've been working with is the fact that we need to be more strategic in the way we identify these values and these attributes and these skills in the way we select people with those kind of characteristics and in the way we promote and grow people within our organizations on the basis of these characteristics. Too many times we focus so much on the business success of an individual, you know, what this person was able to do in a specific business area or with specific projects. And we don't think about certain skills that the more you grow in the organization, the more essential they are in this world today, more than ever. They were eventually kindness that we were talking about earlier, that 
build that efficiency in the team, that bond, that ability to produce, you know, in an highly effective way was not that necessary 20 years ago because this company were rich. They had a lot of wealth and they had huge barriers to entry to protect their businesses made of scale of production, of distribution, of communication, of patents. It was so difficult for the man or woman on the street to go and compete with one of these established brands and companies. Today, instead, through e-commerce, social media, new technologies that are decreasing the cost of manufacturing and production. So a person out there can come up with an idea and go compete with a big brand, a big company. So the small and the big are left with just one option. First, focus on people. Create real value for them. Everything else is another value, but you need to start with that. You need to do it at 360 degrees. You may have a great product and a great brand, but a bad service. That's exactly where competition will come in from. Or maybe you have all of them, product, service, and branding that are great, but maybe the product is not sustainable enough or is the brand is not purposeful enough. And this is exactly where competition will come in. And this is why in this world today, you need to focus on characteristics that eventually were not necessary back then because you were winning anyway. But today... You need to be super efficient in everything we do, and you need to create such an amazing quality in everything we do across every touch point. You need a series of superstars in every function that work together in the most seamless way, and therefore, kindness, optimism, curiosity, humbleness, these are key characteristics for this kind of teams to work. You didn't need that kind of quality. You could get away from the past without it. Exactly, exactly. Do you find it hard to find enough people who have these qualities? And then how do you know? How do you validate it? It's the most difficult part of my job. That's why I decided to go more and more public with these ideas and then pitching them and, you know, conversations like the one I'm having with you. You know, very selfishly, first of all, I need people to understand what kind of people we look for so that somehow they can realize right away if they're the right match or not. I also want to attract people that are hard like this, are thinking in this way. And they're like, oh my God, I can go to work in PepsiCo in design, you know, great. So that's a tool that I use for sure, proactive, upfront. In the conversations with these people, when we interview them, what we do is to be clear, crystal clear about those characteristics. I don't leave it to the manager. Maybe you have a kind manager is going to find people like this. No, we're clear about these skills. I ask the people in my team when they interview people to test all these areas with a series of questions. I also, because we're all different, for instance, when I am myself hiring people, I ask a variety of different people in my own team to interview as well, because even if we have the same list, we all look at people in different ways. And so somehow I leverage a different perspective and the diversity of my own team. And then mostly what is important, especially when you have them inside the organization, is to embody those skills in everything you do every day. You need to talk about it. You need to celebrate people that behave in that way, but you also need to walk the talk. You need to behave in that way. And you need to do it in a very, with full awareness. In the past, I was doing, you know, I was trying to be what I call a unicorn in a very intuitive way. But when I realize the power of these characteristics, now I do certain things purposefully in front of people to shape those kind of behaviors. 
I may be extra kind or extra optimistic or extra curious or extra something, you know, in that list so that I am purposefully sending a message to shape the organization in that way. That's interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense. You over-indexing on these. And communication, you know, like you said, you mentioned everyone filters communication, whether it's body language or verbal, through their own lens. And generally, you know, they're going to downgrade what you think you're communicating. It's going to get downgraded by one notch. And I think studies have been done on this, with, especially with email communications, right? So if I send you an email and I think I'm being positive, you're going to read it as neutral. And if I send one that I think is neutral, you're going to read it as negative, right? And if I send a negative, forget it. It's like DEFCON, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think this is true with leaders, right? So we can come in and I feel this in my, like, I can feel like I'm positive, but someone's going to be like, oh, Mark's kind of down today. So I have to over-index that positivity for them to receive it as positive. And I think that you've kind of settled on that naturally. And I think that's a really powerful awareness and skill for leaders. Yeah. There is also the empathy you were talking about earlier. If you study the theories of language and semantic, essentially there are a series of ingredients that you use to create meaning. There is every time a sender, somebody talking, a message, what you say, a receiver, and then there is a code, a media, a context, and noises. So I studied this when I was still at school and it opened a world to me. Because then I've been playing with these ingredients in a very, very, very conscious way all these years, both in my, you know, with myself or my personal brand, building, designing these organizations, but then also with the products and the brands we are creating. So I may say something that is meant to be kind with my words, but then is also what you do with code and media. So the media is the example you just made of the email. You know, you want to use emails, but then maybe you have other media that you can use to convey and reinforce a message. It could be your social media, or it could be an encounter with a person in a meeting, or it could be that you take that person out for dinner, and then the media become the dinner. But essentially being very, very careful and very strategic about all the media you are using to consistently reinforce the same message for the receiver. And then the code. The code, well, in the email, unfortunately, you have a specific code that is the written language. Now, thank God there are emoji that are really there to help you replacing your body language. Right. But being aware that different people receive those differently as exactly. well. Gen Generation Z or X has canceled a lot of emojis that, you know, you and I might take for granted and be like, oh, we think the thumbs up really means thumbs up. And they think it's like, yeah, you're being like flippant or something like that. Or And so I love what you're saying because then, then it's all about the receiver. You know, it's so important to understand who you're talking to in depth because the same kind of message with the same kind of code and the same kind of media could be, the meaning could be different on the base of how the receiver is perceiving all of this. And so it's so important. This is a second answer to your previous question. It's so important to understand the people in front of you. In my case, it was the CEOs and the executive leaders that were sponsoring the creation of the new capability. It was the people around me that I needed to take with me in the journey. It was the people in my teams and everybody around, customers, consumers, people out there. It's so important to deeply understand what drives them, what is important to them, what is the code that they use, how they interpret those codes. And they've been always playing with it, playing on the edge of what you can do with those codes. As an example, you know, the dress code. 
the way you dress. So I am a designer. People expect me to be creative. You know, they are paying me for this in these companies. But the paradox is that they love the creativity, but they fear the creativity as well because it's difficult to control and it's difficult to extract money out of the creativity escape. And so, you know, they want designers, but then they put them there on the corner. They're like, oh, I'm going to call you when I need you. You know, I'm going to use you. But then we, business leaders, are the decision makers. And so over the years, I've been playing with the visual codes and the language codes to, on one side, remind everybody of my creativity. Crazy shoes, like colorful, crazy shoes, or talking about love and kindness and optimism in boardrooms. But then I balance that with a formal jacket. I always wear a jacket, you know, in those meetings, in these rooms, and I balance the words, emotions, love with productivity, ROI, uh, return of investment, and many other things. And so there is always this, I provoke you, I show you that I bring in a diversity that you want, that you value, but I also show you that I'm one of yours. I talk your language and together we can leverage the creativity to disrupt the company. Now, if I'm in the boardroom and I'm asking for millions of dollars of investment in a project or on my team, you know, I will be a little bit more conservative, still with the crazy shoes, but, you know, maybe it's a black jacket, double breast. And if I am at the World Business Forum talking to all these CEOs from all around the world, in the case, I have the credibility because I'm on the stage and then I'm going to go wild, but I deliver still business messages, but I deliver them with, you know, crazy jackets and my full body language because I'm in that context, I'm inspiring them. In the context of the boardroom, I need to reassure them, but still with the sparkle of creativity. So yeah, code and media are so, so important. And the understanding of the receiver empathy is super important. Right. I think I need to hire you as my dress consultant. (laughs) (laughs) I've been stuck on jeans and a blue blazer for a long time. That's your identity. That's my identity, right? The Navy SEAL. I've got to move beyond that. Successfully, what you do with your identity, so I think you you don't need a consultant. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. I know I was going to ask you about your dress because I saw here that you were considered one of the 30 best dressed men from GQ Italia. That's pretty cool. They've been very kind to me. <laughs> so in this new age where technology and, and AI and everything's moving really fast, right? And so it's been termed the exponential age. And I'm involved in a doctorate in leadership program right now. And we're, we're studying these things. And one of the most important skills that leaders will have that computers and AI won't have is creativity and how one of the most important skills for leaders in the future is going to be design. Because there's a lot of other things that will be handled by algorithms and robotic things. So what is your perspective on the role of design in terms of leadership capacity, leadership development, and moving it from the fringe into the center of the organization as a domain of excellence? Look, I agree with what you just stated, that is a very important leadership skill. It should be taught in all kinds of schools, but 
we need to be clear about what design is and what, what is this thing. Yeah. Well, let's start there. And uh, by the way, there's very few design schools, right? I mean, in business or for business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just don't exist. And it don't, you don't find an MBA with design as your major, right? And I think that needs to change. Well, first of all, you know, there is a difference between design and design thinking. Design is really connected to output of what you do. So at the end of the day, as a designer, you want to create products or a digital interface or a piece of graphics. So there is that component. Design thinking is the way of thinking and behaving and operating of these designers. Is what you learn in design school, what drives you to act as a designer and produce those outputs, but it could be applied to anything, it could be taught to other kinds of capabilities. I agree. Thank you for that distinction. I think design thinking is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It is important even for us designers because paradoxically, there are many designers that are not design thinkers. They learned at the school, but then they started to work. They got trapped in the definition of design that is just generating the piece of art and graphic and that product, and they forgot what they learned at school. And this is important because I saw so many companies thinking, oh, I'm investing in design thinking. They hire designers that were not design thinkers. They failed in what the company was expecting from them. And they blame design without understanding that they should blame just themselves because they didn't hire the right people with the right design thinking kind of skills. So the design component, by the way, design thinking is important too. So the other opposite Direction is when you have a bunch of non-designers that are good as design thinkers, but they still need the ability to, at the end, to design something. Therefore, you still need those designers in the mix. Now, what is design thinking? Essentially, there are multiple definitions, but one that I think is a good fit for our conversation right now is this connection between empathy, understanding people, but caring about them. You know, in the, the subtitle of my book is People in Love with People. This is what design thinkers are. People that love other people, people that care about creating value for them through the platforms that these companies offer them. I was talking with one of our executives from HR just a few minutes before having this conversation with you. And I was telling him, wow, I feel so privileged because I have this amazing platform that is PepsiCo to do good, to impact the life of people, to touch the life of people. Every day, billions of people through the products that we create and really trying, you know, because of this access, because of this platform, we can really, you know, try to move entire industries and society in the right direction. This is what people in love with people do and how they think. They don't think about, oh, I'm going to generate value for the company in the next quarter. You need that too. They're able to have that kind of thinking, but they're driven and motivated by the long-term Vision, understanding that you need to deliver short term as well, else you will never be able to realize your dream. But again, empathy is the starting point. The second pillar of design thinking is strategy. So you teach to these leaders the culture of love for others, that's culture, and then all the tools that you need to have that kind of attention for others. But it starts with culture. And then strategy is essentially, once you understand what is relevant to others through empathy, you need to figure out what is relevant to your company, to your business, through strategy. And there are three main dimensions that you want to focus on. The first one is, very important, the business model. 
I have an intuition about something that people may need, like, I don't know, a premium beverage in a specific market. The question from it, that's empathy. Strategy is, do I have the right business model to sell premium beverages if my distribution is something else? Then you need to ask yourself, the second dimension is, within strategy, is processes. So do I have the right processes to manufacture that, for instance, or to drive that idea within my organization in an efficient way? And the third dimension is culture. Do I have the right culture within the organization now to embrace that idea? So, for instance, if I have an organization made of six, uh, sales reps that are so good at selling entry-level price products, so mass products, are they going to be able to sell the dreams of premiumness and you know all kinds of products that are different? Am I going to have the right management and understand how to manage with confidence a completely different kind of price positioning and communication strategy for premium products? So design thinking is about understanding what people need, but also understanding how to strategize a business model, processes, and culture, often we forget culture, to make that thing happen. And then the third pillar is prototype. And this is why it's called design thinking and it's not called pink thinking or whatever thinking, because you now are going to use the tools of the designers to create mockups, prototypes. And all of this is the prototype in the process of innovation, is the prototype you take to market. Even a business could be a prototype by itself if you see that as an opportunity to learn and extract insights out of that. So all of this Prototyping, I talk about this in the book, there are multiple values, but very briefly, is the value of aligning everybody around an idea, is the value of unlocking the ability of different functions to contribute to the co-creation of that idea. All the way, by the way, not just the internal functions of the company, but customers, consumers, people out there, is also the power, what I call the power of the shiny object, is the power of these prototypes to excite people to unlock sponsorship and investments. And all of these build confidence in the organization to take the risk of the new idea and also drives productivity and quality in the process. This is what design thinking is, and it can be applied to anything, any kind of thing. It doesn't need to be a product or a brand. It could be a country. It could be an issue in HR, in finance, anything. So it really is about design thinking, your book. And who's the target audience? Is it is it CEOs or is it just like people who want to start their own business? Yeah, is it future leaders? I love this question. Uh, the, the key target audience is my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, yeah. I'm joking, but I'm not joking. I wrote this book thinking, okay, I want for her, she's seven months, almost seven months old. I want her to be exposed to all of these things because I wish that somebody would have told them to me when I was young. So immediately after then, of course, is the new generations. It's people that are getting ready today at school and then at the beginning of their professional journey to change the world. Now, then the other target is the business leader that have the power to hire this kind of people in their teams, in their companies, to change the trajectory of these companies. And so, you know, I hope that by reading this book, they get full awareness about what are the key traits that you need in this new world to drive that kind of change? With them, of course, all the HR world and, and the people that are really consulting with this business leader to find the right talents. 
And then this approach applies to literally anything. But of course, branding, innovation of any kind is at the core of the book with so many examples that come from the world of Pepsi, of 3M, My Life in Philips, Designing Wearable Technologies, but also many other products that I bump into in the streets of New York, in Dublin, in Varese, in Italy, in my city where I was born, uh, uh, stories from my childhood. So there is a lot of theory. Is a is an innovation book, is a leadership book, but it's also there is so much of my life to make this theory by far, you know, more digestible and approachable and accessible through the pages of the book. This is awesome. Uh, this has been so much fun to talk to you about. If someone's listening to this and they're like, "I this sounds really fascinating to me," but I've got, I literally have thirty seven books on my nightstand that I'm waiting to get to. You know, maybe I'll put this on my list as number thirty eight. But what can I do tomorrow? Is there one or two things that, you know, that are like, start here, do these things, start doing these things, and you'll be well on your way that you can share? Look, if you don't want to read a book, check the page with the 24 characteristics of the unicorns. You don't even need, you know, there are hundreds of pages to explain them, but if you read kindness, curiosity, all these characteristics, start to practice them every day. Just try. For six months, try to practice the idea of kindness, even if you don't read what they meant. Don't try to bring them into your organization. Start working on them yourself. Like there is, there are others like being proactive, go the extra mile. You know, there are many others. Try and see what happens. See if something changes in the next six months. I'm sure you will see changes. I have no doubt. I mean, even just the moment you behave in a different way with the people around you, you will see people reacting. And so try, don't read the full book. Is one page, they're all together and start to practice them. And then you can find me in LinkedIn and in Instagram. I'm very active. Let me know what happened after you practice them because I'm really curious and it, it may become the topic of my next book. You know, all these people out there that started to practice these ideas and this is what happened. What is your Instagram and your your social media handle? So it's oh, Mauro Porcini, both in Instagram and in um, and in uh, LinkedIn, easy to find. There is no other Mauro Porcini out there, as far as I know. <laughs> All right, Mauro, that was um, really, really enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate your time, and, and thanks for bringing this book out into the world. And you know, it's definitely uh, needed, right, to have these conversations to help people Thank you know, you. lead with that compassion and kindness. Thank you so much for giving me the time and your platform, and it's been great. And thanks everybody for listening to us today. Yeah, it's been an honor. Well, that's another fascinating conversation with Mauro Porcini. I love the discussion about the human side of innovation and how love and kindness and compassion and empathy are really critical for leaders today. And it's not just about design, it's about the bottom line. Really great, great episode. Thank you so much, Mauro, for being on the show. Show notes are up on our website at markdevine.com and you can reach out to us at Twitter at Mark Devine and at Real Mark Devine on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me also on LinkedIn and this episode will be on my YouTube channel. Quick plug for the newsletter Divine Inspiration, which comes out every Tuesday where I have the show notes from the podcast, my blog, other interesting things that are happening in my life and around the world. I think you really enjoy it. Go to markdevine.com to sign up and subscribe and to share it with your friends. Thanks so much for my amazing team, Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell and Q Williams, who help produce this podcast, bringing incredible guests to you every week. And if you haven't reviewed or rated the show, it's very helpful. So go to Apple or wherever you listen to the show to review and rate it, and it helps other people find it and helps keep us at the top of the ranking. So again, 
As usual, thanks so much for being part of the change that you want to see in the world. We're going to do this at scale. And like Mario said, I'm very optimistic about the future because there are a lot of kind, compassionate people out there. So turn off the TV, shut down this social media and help other people recognize the kindness and the compassion that's all around them and to lead with that by example. And so let's do that. Till next time, this is your host, Mark Devine. Hoo-yah.